I think if you want to learn to build a great business, you just need to invest that time. I sent out over 20,000 personal emails and made over 2,000 phone calls to customers in three years. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to entrepreneur JD Ross, who is well known for co-founding real estate technology giant Opendoor, a platform which makes it possible to sell your home in just minutes. Opendoor has raised a total of $320 million in venture funding and has surpassed the multi-billion dollar annual revenue run rate. Earlier in JD's career, he started two successful businesses during college, and it went on to lead growth as a VP of product at Adipar, where he onboarded the first $100 billion of client assets onto the company's platform. In this week's episode, he talks about his college businesses and how he got a loan from his school to prevent his company from going bankrupt, landing his first role in Silicon Valley, how he ended up meeting his co-founders to start Opendoor, how important it is to be obsessed with helping your customers, practical engineering and scaling teams within a large company, and how to accelerate your own personal growth curve. There's that and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. All right. Well, thank you, JD, for taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Corey. So I'd like to start by asking for you to share, I guess, a little bit of information on yourself. You know, how did you get involved? How did you start Open Door? How did you move to San Francisco? Where are you from, et cetera? Yeah. So I guess let's start with, for those who don't know, Open Door is a company that makes selling a home simple, certain, and fast. We purchase it from you for the full market value in cash in as little as three days. The reason for that is that most people can't buy a home until they sell their current home. And so we let them unlock that home equity and become more competitive buyers. In our first four years, we've helped you know tens of thousands of people complete that hassle-free move. And we're buying about a thousand homes per month right now in our first few markets. I started the company with three other co-founders, Keith Raboy, Eric Wu, and then Ian Wong. But I started my journey as an entrepreneur back in college. So I went to WashU, and during my freshman year, I started two businesses with a loan from family and friends. The first was a moving and storage business called U Trucking, and the second was a custom apparel company that was called Fresh Prints, which is a terrible pun, but a good business. They're both successful. Fresh Prints did a couple million in sales in its first year in campuses across the country, and U Trucking was used by nearly two-thirds of students at WashU who don't live within driving distance. So I learned three big things from those companies. The first was how to do practical engineering. I think a lot of CS students come away pretty disillusioned by the curriculum in terms of actually being able to build companies. Starting a company is a great way to actually personally build the websites, invoicing systems, that marketing, logistics, whatever else you need to do on your own, mostly from scratch. And that's a really good way to become a much better engineer in terms of practical business acumen. The second thing I learned during those businesses was customer obsession. I sent out over 20,000 personal emails and made over 2,000 phone calls to customers in the first three years. I think if you want to learn to build a great business, you just need to invest that time. And I don't think nearly enough people, especially with kind of CS or startup backgrounds, want to invest the time just talking to customers over and over and over again. And that's so important. And the third piece I think is how to like thrive in chaos. During one of the summers at U Trucking, there was a flood that hit our storage facility. Our insurance company, of course, this first call we make is they were like, oh, that's an act of God. So we're going to deny all of your claims. I'm not sure if anyone is familiar with how cash flow businesses work, but you don't have a lot of venture backing to deal with those sorts of things. And so about 10% of our customers' boxes had some amount of damage. And I spent personally hundreds of hours between classes those first few months just cataloging every single piece of damaged item across every single box with every customer in the storage business. That was insanely hard. But I think I learned more in those three months than probably any point in my career afterwards. Out of pocket, I reimbursed people for all the damage. And I needed to take out a loan from actually from the school 
to prevent bankrupting the company. For them, the school kind of treated it as a PR crisis that a student-run business had these problems and was willing to loan me some cash to front the reimbursement. But I, but I kept my reputation. I think that's more important than anything. And interestingly enough, the next summer, we had all-time high sales. So it, it was a good lesson in karma as well. Wow. And you said you did how many calls? Over 2,000 phone calls and 20,000 emails? Yeah. So those are the ones I recorded. I don't know if there's other ones. There's probably plenty of other ones I didn't have logged anywhere. Yeah. So I think that's amazing. So what went down during those calls? What emails did you send? You know, like I get, you know, a bunch of kind of automated emails from people when I sign up for services, but like, I'd love to dive deep into that and, and hear kind of what- Yeah. These are 20,000 personal emails. Not a single one of those counts for automated. I sent, you know, probably 150,000 plus automated ones. I, I think those were basically just answering customers' questions or reaching out and asking, you know, what could we do better? Helping schedule people. Basically all the things that would eventually need to become automated in the business, I just did by hand enough times that it drove me insane. And that's what led to me building out these logistics systems, building out these marketing email systems, building out like all these things that I later learned to code in order to do started with me being incredibly frustrated by having to do it by hand. And did you stay in school and graduate? I graduated in three and a half years, but I was, I was flying out of St. Louis probably more often than my professors liked. What's your take on that debate, whether to stay in school or drop out? seems like you had two successful businesses while you were in school. Sure, you probably thought about that. Like, did that ever come up where you were thinking of dropping out? It did. I had two people who were pressuring me to drop out at the time. Uh, I didn't listen to either of them because the person who was pressuring me not to was my grandmother. And that's pretty important. I don't think that dropping out is necessary. I think if it's your company and it's on a rocket ship and you're finding out that you're spending almost all of your time building it, then yes, drop out. But if you're a student and someone's offering you a job at some company that you don't think you could have gotten, 99 times out of 100, dropping out is probably the wrong decision. It's better just to complete your degree and that job will still be there. Those opportunities are still going to be there. If you're smart and capable, like have some faith in yourself. How many hours out of the week were you working on your companies versus at, at school? You know, it's hard for me to remember. I think I've, I've always sort of been that 24-7 person in general. I know at school I was in a fraternity. I was, you know, hosting these parties every week, two to three parties a week on top of these companies. So I clearly wasn't doing only the two businesses, but they definitely took up a huge amount of time. Pretty seasonal businesses. So I know that from probably March until September was far more focused on the business than on school and having fun. But, you know, those, those middle months are, were a little more flexible. And what happened once you graduated? How did you kind of remove yourself from those two businesses and get into Silicon Valley? Yeah. So my sophomore year, I was being recruited by some people on Google's APM program. And I was at some dinner. Someone at the table told me, hey, you shouldn't join Google. Uh, you need to meet this guy, Joe Lonsdale. And I had no idea what he was talking about, and I, but I thought it was really interesting and funny that he was willing to say that at that dinner. So I took the call. And this was in the, this is 2009, so it's the midst of the recession. And Joe had just left Palantir to start a company called Adapar. And the mission was to fix the financial system, you know, whatever that meant at the time. And I was sold. So I flew out that summer and started working as an engineer for him. It was something like $800 a month. We were working out of his house. I'd never been to California before. Startups weren't really a thing at that point. So my friends all thought I was totally insane. Again, I was running these two businesses that were doing well. I ultimately ended up leading the product team as Adapar grew from five to a hundred people, onboarded about a hundred billion dollars in client assets to that platform, hopefully lead to a place where finance is more transparent. But during that time, we were flying back and forth from St. Louis to San Francisco wasn't exactly sustainable, but I think at that age, when you have those opportunities, you just have to push yourself to do it, find the time, sacrifice elsewhere. I think if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, walking and chewing gum is sort of a, a skill you want to learn how to build. 
Right. So how old were you when you met Joe Lonsdale and you were, I guess, employee number five at Adapar? Yeah. So I met Joe when I was 19. It was my sophomore summer. It was myself, Joe, and then two other people full-time at Adapar and then a fourth one joined before I was able to claim the fifth title. We didn't know exactly what we were doing in the way that today startups have this kind of playbook that they can build off of from YC and everywhere else. You sort of, it was a little more figured out as you go, which was good and bad. I think I personally picked up a lot of good habits, but also some bad habits from that journey that I've had to unlearn at Open Door. But it was really valuable experience. I think being 19 and having the opportunity to craft something new with people who have been successful before is probably the best thing you can do. And so finding that mentor would be my number one suggestion. And what were some of the things that you've learned from Joe? Joe is incredibly mission-driven. I think he's more so than almost anyone I've ever met, believes that you should never do something that isn't a personal mission, isn't better for, in your view, for the world. And so, you know, you're never going to be perfect at that. But I think using that as a filter is incredibly valuable in your decision-making. And about a minute ago, you, you spoke about finding mentors. What would be your advice to somebody listening into this right now that doesn't live in San Francisco? Maybe he or she lives in the Midwest or out of the country. What would be your advice to them on finding a mentor? My advice is, maybe this is contrarian these days, but just move to San Francisco. Like The density of talent and the number of people here who have done it before is just so much higher. I think I have a lot of friends who are in the Midwest or you know even on the East Coast who just have you know found what I would consider probably to be a top you know two or three percent person to be a mentor locally, but that person pales in comparison to the types of people and the accessibility that's available in San Francisco and the Bay Area. So I think the best shot is still to come out to San Francisco and meet someone here. And what do you think? You know, now that you're kind of on the other side of the table and, and you've hired you know hundreds of people, if you were to reflect on your experience with Joe, why do you think Joe hired you at 19? What made you attractive? I can't speak to why Joe hired me, but I think that the reason I was hireable is that I had shown that I could be successful before. So running those two companies and showing that they were actually successful and having built up the skill sets around that, I think it's sort of the be so good they can't ignore you. The way to get so good is just to do things yourself. You don't need permission from anyone to build a business. You don't need permission from anyone to find that talented student uh, in your dorm who you want to build something with. You, you can just do that. And so I think looking where you don't need permission and building there first is going to make you far more attractive to mentors in the future. That's great. Great advice. I'd love to talk about the Open Door story and how you, know, you got connected with your co-founders. How did you meet? How did you get connected to, I'm sure it was it three or four co-founders? Yeah, there's three other co-founders. So first was Heath Rabway, who's now a general partner at Coastal Ventures, former CEO of Square and you know one of the PayPal mafia. Keith and I met at a Square party at Red Door Coffee. It was celebrating Square's first day where they had had a million dollars in sales on the platform. And if you look at what they're doing today, it's almost it's pretty funny to think how small they were then, maybe 30, 40 people. And we got into an argument during this party. I, I knew who he was from Twitter at the time. And we started arguing about fraud loss rates. And I was just convinced that they were going to make the same mistakes that they made at PayPal, where they cared too much about fraud and solving the problem at the expense of customer experience. I don't remember the exact positions each of us had, but at the end of it, he tried to hire me to run the risk team, which I thought was funny because I knew almost nothing about risk <laughs> and certainly nothing about credit cards. I just had a passion for the customer experience around it. But because I decided I was totally unqualified, I said no. We ended up becoming good friends and arguing about startups for a few more years. And a lot of that was spent, time was spent talking about real estate and why real estate was broken and what could be done about it. And through that, Keith had this idea for a long time called Home Run, where you would go to the site, you'd enter your address, and you'd say what you were willing to sell your home for. And the site would just say yes or no. And 
I, I didn't think that was a great idea, but I thought it had the nugget of a really good idea. So Keith was telling a lot of people about this at the time and eventually connected me and Eric, who is our CEO. He had started a company that sold to Trulia. He had run a 50 to 100 home portfolio since he was 18 years old. Like The founder market fit was sort of off the charts. So we really clicked. I respected how he thought about customers. I really respected how he thought about customer development. And the reason I mentioned Keith trying to hire me for this risk job is fourth co-founder is Ian Wong, who ended up taking that job and leading Risk It Square. And we pulled him out of a out of another small startup to, to start this company together. So I'd like to ask, like, how did y'all buy your first home? How did you know there was demand for this product? Was there anything that you did early on to kind of assess the demand for Open Door? Yeah, you know, it's really funny. I don't think we've told this story publicly before. Selling a home is a really important and emotional moment if you've never done it before. We really did not want to mess it up. Before we really launched or even raised any money and did anything, we created this fake brand called SimplerSell.com, uh, just mostly to figure out, could, could we actually do this? Could we offer you know fair market value on someone's home? And would it be a great experience for them? We, we didn't want to cause any kind of trouble. We didn't want to make any mistakes. It worked. It worked really well. Our first customer, Josh Brewer, out in Phoenix, took the plunge with us, You know, went to a Facebook ad, clicked on it, entered his home address, and sold his home to a simpler sell. Um, I think we probably 10 people in the company at the time, and we've all had this you know, bottle of wine we mixed, blended together called the Simpler Cellar, which I am aging in my basement right now. <laughs> it's great. And what do you wish you had started doing more of much earlier in your life, like specifically actions or activities with compounding effects? I think I massively underweighed the importance of listening to other people and the importance of building relationships around disagreements instead of using them as a way to get to the truth. I think one of the things I did really poorly earlier in my career that I've done, I've hopefully gotten a lot better at is when I had an opinion, whether I was right or wrong, and you know, let's assume for the sake of the argument I was right, I viewed my job as taking someone from their position to mine as efficiently as possible. That doesn't work. All that does, I mean, or maybe it does work to, to a certain extent, but it's definitely not the best thing to do. A much more effective way to do that is to deeply understand where someone is, what led them to their conclusions, and then to fill it in context and sort of draw the path from where you are to where they are, and then you can both walk on it. And that's a much better way to both get to the truth and also to build a much stronger relationship with that person, which allows you to get to harder questions in the future. And who would you say some of your mentors are today? Keith is still very much a mentor of mine. Eric is a mentor of mine. I still keep Joe as a mentor of mine. I have a lot of internal mentors at the company. I have my spiritual mentor as my executive coach, which I highly recommend to anyone who has a, a large team is to get an executive coach. You know, you, you find mentorship in so many places. I think Twitter is itself a great way to get, you know, that one way mentorship. You can now look to the smartest people in the world feeding insight constantly, who will often even engage with you if you just reach out to them. That's amazing. And I recommend biographies. Which biographies? You know what's funny about recommending books is that they need to be at the right moment in someone's life for them to really hit. Books that have been really impactful for me are sometimes books that today would mean absolutely nothing or tomorrow might be the most insightful thing I could possibly be handed. So it's hard for me to recommend any kind of book without knowing where someone is today. Recently, I've really enjoyed Benjamin Franklin biography by Walter Isaacson. I've really enjoyed The Power Broker by Robert Caro. Yeah, I could probably name 10 or, 10 or 12 others, but again, it's about point in time. And when did you start with the executive coach? And uh, I'd love to dive deeper into that. Yeah, I started Open Door when I was 23 years old, and I had maybe managed eight or so people before. 
And I found myself with a, a larger team and a lot of pressure to grow very quickly. And I think one of my co-founders, Keith, gave a uh, talk during YC Startup School about operating a business. And there's the company growth curve and your personal growth curve. And I, I think whatever you can do to accelerate your personal growth curve as a founder in a company is incredibly important and worth prioritizing. And so I decided and heard before that an executive coach would be a great way to accelerate your personal growth curve. And that was worth the investment. And when did you get that executive coach? Was it right at 23 when you started the company or was it a year or two or three in? Yeah, I think I, I interviewed probably 20 or 30 coaches before I settled on the, the coach I work with today. I believe we've been working together now for about two and a half years, so probably about two years in. How big was Open Door at the very beginning of that period, two and a half years ago? Yeah, I think Open Door was probably around 40 or so people, maybe 50 people. Got it. And what are some of the kind of biggest things that you've worked on with this coach and where you've kind of grown with this coach? Yeah, I think it's a, a lot of it is just interpersonal dynamics, less so on like strategy. Uh, I get most of that mentorship from my team here and hiring really great people. You know, what's interesting is that as you grow the company from one to 10 to hundreds of people, you just have these different chapters. One of my favorite rules is just like the rule of threes. So every time the company triples, everything breaks. It's just like everything that worked really well is a complete disarray and a disaster. And so you, you learn that by uh, trial and error. So like the first 10 people, everyone in that group of 10 people is going to replicate themselves at least 10 times if you're successful, all of their strengths, all their weaknesses. And, and so it's critical that every single person in that initial group is someone you're ready to kind of spend 24 seven with because you're likely going to do that. The next stage is like this, I'll call it like the band of brothers and sisters stage. It's like that first 30, 40 people and they really shape the culture. So I think a lot of founders at this stage start hiring for culture fit, but you really should be looking for cultural contribution. It's really crucial that you develop an open dialogue with everyone in that group about what's working, what's not working, and what the company should do about it. You want every single person in that band of brothers and sisters to be like a missionary for the company and the mission. You want it to be part of their identity. The reason you get a coach at the next stage is because you hit this, it's all changing stage. It's from 50 to 150 people where a lot of companies falter because you're growing so fast and everything is absolutely on fire. And there's not enough structure yet. And you don't really have necessarily, you know, a leadership team built out. And so at this stage, earlier employees who previously were generalists who owned, you know, large swaths of the company, they can start to feel disengaged because it's no longer that band of brothers and sisters. They don't know everyone anymore. But you can turn that into empowerment. You can sit them down one on one and just say, you're a flag bearer for the company. You're a flag bearer for Open Doors culture. And everyone who is joining today is going to look to you for how to behave and how to contribute. And it's on you to teach them what it means to be a member of the team here. Because if you don't, they're going to change it. And I, I recommend at that point also sort of reaching out to every one of these missionaries in your company and gathering their opinions about what the company's values are. And using that bottoms up process where everyone contributes to write down and establish the set of like, what are your company's values and make sure everyone knows them. You mentioned that executive coaching is something that you do to accelerate your own personal growth curve. What are some other things that you've done to accelerate that growth curve? Good question. Done or doing? I think the biggest thing for accelerating your growth curve is just understanding that people learn through osmosis. And so surrounding yourself by great people is the single best way to grow yourself. I think the, the adage is, you know, you are the average of the five people you spend your most time with. You're probably the average of like the 30 to 40 people you spend your most time with, probably in proportion to the amount of time you spend with them. So be really rigorous about who you're spending your time with and thoughtful about who you want to be. That helps a lot in being able to grow in the ways you want to grow. Let's talk about Keith a little bit. He's been on the show before. 
great episode. What are some of the things that you've learned from him? You know what's funny about Keith is that he's basically a state machine for the right answer, but he doesn't always necessarily know why. He just knows what's right. By working with Keith, you sort of get this this cheat code to the answer, and then you get to work backwards to why he's right. That's both helpful and frustrating. That itself is a huge accelerant. What are some non-obvious things that you've done as a founder to make Open Door successful? I think it's really important once you have a team of probably 30 or so people to do a great job with orientation. When someone joins, everyone remembers their first day and being present for that and making sure that you invest a tremendous amount of time and energy in making that first day and first week really effective has lasting impact on not just that person, but also the culture of the whole company. One example is in that like 50 to 150 person phase where everything's changing really quickly by sharing the company's values and and telling everyone who joins that, hey, you are here because things are broken. We're not hiring you because things are working. We're hiring you because things aren't working. So every time you see something that's broken, it's probably because it is. And it's your job to change it. It's your job to make a big change if it's a big problem. And you should feel empowered to do that. And, And making yourself available personally to talk to those people if they ever feel like they're blocked. I think has helped us avoid a lot of major uh, problems in the past. And what's the average day look like for you? My average day is a little bit different than it has been in the past because I, I get to work on uh, new product development. So I'd say about 30% of my time is still spent on hiring. About 30% of my time is spent on new product development with a couple of people on my team. And the, the remainder of that time is split between doing things that are you know company oriented, whether that's helping out another team, working with the product team, doing some kind of PR comms work. There's always just an endless stream of work coming in and you sort of have to pick and choose as it comes in. What is a life hack that very few people know about that you do? You know, I think people look for these complicated but easy solutions to problems. Oh, like eat this supplement and, you know, drink this organic tea and you'll get a six pack in 18 days. I don't think most things are complicated and easy. Most things are simple and hard. And so my life hack is just a willingness to do the things that are simple and hard. Sleep eight hours a day, eat healthy, be nice to my girlfriend, spend time in the gym. Like those things over time. And I think the hidden component here, the life hack here is except that time is a big variable to it are the best life hacks because most people aren't willing to do these simple, hard things over a period of time. Who are three people who you're kind of watching right now you think will be super successful but still young and and aren't yet? You want me to name three people? Yeah. (laughs) There are a lot of really great younger people and some older. I'm not going to name three people, but Open Door is absolutely like filled to the brim with people I'm excited to invest in someday when they build out their companies. I'm constantly in shock of the talent we bring in and also the talent we develop. I think what helps about being a really hard company, and Open Door is an extremely hard company. I, I wish it was, you know, closer to Instagram or something, but it's not. We have to be on the ground with every single home that we buy and sell. We have to. It's both product, it's operations, it's data science, it's capital markets. It's just a complicated business, and so you're forced to learn all of these different aspects by being here over the course of even just a few years that make you set up to be a really successful founder. What's your advice to young people trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives? I'm not sure I'm the best suited to answer that because I've always had a pretty strong sense of direction. I lack a level of empathy for people who don't have that because I just haven't been there. My advice is to find something that's so obvious to you that you have to do it and to wait for that and not to be impatient about 
jumping at the first opportunity that seems okay, but to find something that really, really excites you and that you can dedicate 150% of yourself to. So how did you know when you had those like two successful businesses in college, like step aside and say, you know what, I can do something even greater than this. It's like I see that, you know, someone would may find that pretty difficult. Yeah. I mean, my superpower is just an incredible level of curiosity. I just get obsessed with certain things and dive as deep as I possibly can. Most people don't probably think that storage, shipping, and custom apparel are interesting. And if you told me to start a concrete business, I could probably wax poetic about it for days once I get into it. I think anything is really interesting when you look closely, but I'm I'm not sure if other people have that same level of general curiosity I have. And if you don't, find the thing that does pique that curiosity and go after that. And what are your biggest challenges right now? Growing open door. We're buying a thousand homes per month in our first few markets. We've raised over $300 million. We're doing about two and a half billion dollars in revenue run rate growing really fast. I think we're in eight markets today. We'll be in dozens over the next year. Like now is a crazy time at open door. So my personal challenges are tied very tightly to the company's challenges. Based on the three things that you've learned from your businesses that you ran while you were in college, Graphical engineering, customer session, and thriving in chaos. How is that related to Open Door today? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think I can talk to each three of those, right? The first one on practical engineering, o- Open Door is an engineering company. We're a tech company. And so learning how to intersect really strong software development and data science with actual business problems and translating between those two is, is the basis of this entire company. The second one around customer obsession, we have core values as a company. The number one core value is to start and end with the customer. That's not to start and end with the business, start not to start and end with what's possible. It's start and end with what's needed by customers and you work backwards from there. And it's easy to say that, but to deeply understand what it is that customers are actually looking for and what should the world look like and fighting for that. Uh, is the basis of what Open Door has been built on. Um, the, the third piece is thriving in chaos. Starting a company and building a company is hard, capital H hard. And one of the things we talk about a lot within Open Door, we call it the Hulk mentality. You want to hire people and also develop people to get stronger as things get harder. That resilience is critical because things will come out of left field all the time. You, you can't predict what's happening because by definition, you're on the edge of what's happened already. You're uncovering, you're on this frontier, uncovering this new territory. And so you have to learn how to thrive in chaos because the entire business is always going to be chaos if you're innovating. And are there three people who you would like to thank who have helped you in your career? It's going to be cheesy, but I always will thank my parents. I'm not sure if that counts as one or two, but I think it's really important to have a constant in your life. And for me, that's always been my parents. They've supported me from day one. They continue to support me always. I would thank Keith for giving me wisdom and the, the space to develop it. And I would thank, it's hard to pick three. I, I am so thankful for being surrounded by so many great people, both big and small. I, I think personal integrity is really important. And it's important to me personally, and it's important, I think, professionally, that if, if you can come into something and do it for selfless reasons, I love building tech companies. I love building technology. I love building products. I love working with people to build those things. Coming from that genuine place opens you up to find other people who share that genuine joy. And I, I'm just grateful for that above all. Awesome. Well, thank you, JD, for joining on the show. Yeah, thank you, Corey. I'm really excited. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with JD Ross. Thank you so much again, JD, for coming on the show. 
I love how an argument with one of the most successful people in Silicon Valley led to a job offer and then the chance to work together on a multi-billion dollar idea. You can find all of his links in the description. You can also follow your host Corey Levy on Twitter at Corey. Thank you once again for listening. We have episodes coming out every Tuesday, so stay tuned and we'll see you next week on Off Record.